Thanks, Lockie. Well, many of us will think of us here as a family. But how do we think about those who are not part of this family, or in fact not part of any such church family? Should we ignore them? Should we dislike them? In this passage, God shows us his attitude to the Ninevites. So that we understand what he thinks of those who don't know him. And he wants us also to have his attitude. So this morning's talk is divided into three parts. There's God's attitude, Jonah's attitude, and then God provides. So God's attitude. Well, God shows his attitude first in his action. Um, In chapter 3, verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And then we read at the end of chapter 4, he explains uh, why he acted that way. 4 verse 10. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. I think the implication is just quietly that God made Nineveh grow and tended it. Back to the passage. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for that great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people? who cannot tell their right hand from their left. See, God sustains Nineveh. He made it. He sustains it now. Yes, they are evil. Yes, they are powerful. They're described in verse 11 as a great city. They were the country that ended up taking over the northern tribes of Israel and ruling them, sent them into captivity and doing the same thing with many other countries. But God has concern for them. And why does he have concern? Because he says they don't know the very basics. They cannot tell their right hand from their left. Nineveh may fight wars and win, but God sees they have a very basic need. So basic, they can't tell their right hand from their left. And so God is concerned. And sometimes I think God's concern is quite striking. It's quite striking here, isn't it? I remember um, quite a few years ago, in the late 90s, I was um, learning Greek so I could read the New Testament in Greek and I thought it was a pretty cool thing. And it took me, you know, sort of about 20 seconds just to read each word. But, you know, we're getting somewhere. So Helen thought she'd just see how I was coming along with my Greek. So she grabbed the Greek New Testament, turned to a verse. Fortunately, they had the book titles at the top in English. Uh, Picked out a particular verse without letting me see what verse it was. So there I am, I'm struggling, I'm reading it. And I said, oh gosh, I said, this is no good. It says here, he loves the world. Of course, I I just presumed that this was someone, you know, naughty who loved the world, but in fact, it was God. Uh, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And in the same way, he loves Nineveh. Well, let's consider some other cities Got beautiful pictures of cities there. That is a city of Kathmandu. Now, what you can't see in that picture is there's beautiful hills all around it. Lovely place. One and a half million people live there. About 1% Christian. What does God think of that city? He's concerned for it. He loves it. There's about 1.5 million people there who don't know their right hand from their left. 
and Hong Kong. Sorry, it's the next picture. There we go. Hong Kong, what a magnificent skyline. It's a place to be if you want to see New Year's fireworks, I'm told. But then there's pollution. Hmm. What does absolutely packed, of course, with people? Seven and a half million people in that area. What does God think of, the, of Hong Kong? Well, he loves it and he's concerned about it. There's about seven million people there who don't know their right hand from their left. And then we have this city. I wonder if you recognise that city from that picture. It is, of course, Adelaide. No pollution, beautiful blue skies, lovely beaches, hills, wine. What does God think of this city? He's concerned for it. There's over one million people in this city who don't know their right hand from their left. And when we look at the passage we call the Great Commission uh, in Matthew 28, which is on the next slide, um, we see that Jesus gives us a similar thing. See, what's Jesus say after he's raised from the dead? He says, Then Jesus came to them, his disciples, and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that passage, if all authority has been given to me, I would probably say to people who are listening, therefore worship me, or therefore do what I say. But Jesus is so concerned for people who don't know him that his therefore is therefore go and make disciples. Therefore go and tell others about me so they'll follow me and so they may too have eternal life. For Jesus, it's obvious that that's, that's just the natural way his authority should be used. That's how concerned he is and God is for people. But just in case we get to thinking that we're the only ones who are important in creation, notice what God says at the end of verse 10. See, he's concerned for that great city, but in the end of verse 10 of uh, chapter 4 of Jonah, he says, and also many animals. Got a picture there just to illustrate the point. See, God's not just concerned for the, for the creature at the back who's leading those animals. He's also concerned for the animals. It makes a note. And he's always been concerned for the animals. When he's given the Israelites instructions on how to live, he says in Deuteronomy 25 verse 4, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. The New Testament also applies this to uh, people who teach us the Bible. But I presume it does actually apply to oxes. Do not muzzle them while they're, while they're working. Care for them. And just to make the point again, Proverbs 12 has these words. Oh, we've got Proverbs 10.12 instead of 12.10. Oh, well, Proverbs 12.10 doesn't say that. <laughs> Proverbs 12.10 says, um, The righteous care for the needs of their animals. See, that's what God's like. He's kind and compassionate. He wants us to be the same. That's God. But Jonah, on the other hand, his attitude's very different. See, he explains why he ran away. We're not told in chapter 1 why Jonah ran away. We're told that he did run away from God. We're not told why. But now, verse 2. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? 
That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. See, Jonah knew what God was like. God showed what he was like in the Exodus, which then was quoted again, we saw this morning in Joel uh, from Cameron. That's God. He's consistent. He's compassionate. And Jonah doesn't like it one bit. That's funny. It's almost like there's a contrast between how the Ninevites react to God and how Jonah reacts to the Ninevites. See, the people of Nineveh had said in chapter 3, verse 9, Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. But when Jonah has found out that those people are not going to perish. Verse 5, chapter 4. Jonah had gone out and sat down in a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. It's almost like Jonah is saying, perhaps God will, will relent and will still destroy Nineveh. Hopefully. Hope against hope. Now we're not told... Uh, in Jonah, why uh, God hates Nineveh. But I think we could, it's safe to say that he regarded the people of Nineveh as his enemies. They were, after all, a very powerful uh, country in that area for quite a long time around the time of Jonah. But surely there's a better attitude to enemies, isn't there? See, God has concern. Jonah hates that concern. But Jesus says in Matthew 5, He says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. See, of course we're to love our friends. But Jesus says, if you want to be like God, you want to be sons of God, that is like him or children of God, then you'd be like God in loving enemies, loving everyone. That's what God's like. And that's what we should be like. It's funny, Jonah here is a bit like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. Um, you know the, the son, we'll read it in a moment, but the older brother gets all angry that the younger one gets forgiven. And... Uh, and here we, here we have some of it. So I've just captured the end of it, which gets sort of the, the main points. And, and as I read it, have a think about, do you think Jonah is more like the older son or the younger son? Or, I guess, the father would be the third alternative. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his, his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look. All these years I've been slaving for you and have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
So who, so who is Jonah like? Well, at first, he runs away from God, doesn't he? Like the younger son. And then later, when Nineveh turns from its sin, he turns around and he's like the older son, angry that Nineveh gets forgiven. I guess you could say that he combines the disadvantages of both. He's a bit like this car. See, for a while, um, we owned... Maybe I'll just move on. Here we go. He's a bit like... Don't do that, Jeff. There we go. He's a bit like this car. Um, It's a a smart... What's it called? Some fancy name. Anyway, it's, it's one of the brand smart cars. And for a while, we owned in our house a motorbike and a car. Now, the car was great when you wanted to take quite a few people or the weather was bad and you wanted to stay dry. But the motorbike was great when you were going, say, to the city and you wanted to be able to park anywhere. You could take the motorbike and bang. That combines the disadvantages of the car and the motorbike. Ah, smart crossblade, in case you'd like one. Jonah was a bit like that. See, he combines the disadvantages of both, doesn't he? And I dare say we can be too. After all, I presume the book of Jonah is here for a reason. It's not just here for us to laugh at Jonah. Um, It's here for us because we can be like that. We can be those who run away. And we can be those who are a bit annoyed, frankly, that others get an easier ride than what we've had. So, can we change to be more like God? We've seen God's attitude, who is concerned for those who don't know him. We've seen Jonah's attitude, that he hates that concern. Well, fortunately, God provides. Three times we see this passage. I'm going to find a blank slide if I can. Let's go there, hey? Oh yeah, I'm just, that's right, I've just put it on a blank slide. It, there we go. I'll come back to where we're up to soon. Um, so three times in this passage, uh, in Jonah 4, we see that God provides. So firstly, verse 5, Jonah, Jonah had gone out and sat down in a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what happened to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant. And made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. See, it's easy to think of God providing good things. That's what we think, don't we? And that's what we talk about. Look what God has given me. God has provided me this job. God has provided me this house. God has given me this car. And we can think that God is blessing us when he gives us good things. But let's have a look at the next two things. Verse 7. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. See, God provided the good leafy plant, and he provided the worm and the east wind just to make Jonah suffer. To make him suffer, why? So he'd learn a lesson. So it's almost like God provided the leafy plant just so he could take it away. 
So I don't think we... I think it's good when I get good things. I used to, I used to think, oh, he's just going to take it away. But I think it is good, you know, rejoice, God may be giving us something good. But we can't be certain quite why he's giving it to us, can we? But I think when he gives us something bad, we can be certain. See, God gives us bad things to teach us a lesson. Hebrews 12 verse 7. It says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? See, when we get bad things, God is actually being kind to us. He's treating us like children. He's loving us. He's helping us like he helped Jonah to be like him. I mean, I wouldn't care to be in the full heat of that Middle East sun, would you? With that hot wind? That can be hot. No shade. Not good. But it's not a sign that God hates Jonah. Actually, God loves Jonah. He wants, us to ch- he wants Jonah to change. Peter Brain, who was a former bishop of Armadale Diocese in New South Wales, he wrote a book called Going the Distance uh, for Christian Leaders. And one of his chapters was called Depression Needn't Be Depressing. See, in he said, depression gives church leaders an opportunity to look at their lives, see what's going on, see perhaps what changes they can make, see perhaps they've been neglecting prayer or Bible reading, perhaps we're trying to do too much instead of delegating things to others. See, for me, I'm often depressed when I've been neglecting evangelism. I know I should do it, and when I don't, it gets me annoyed. What does Hebrews say? Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. It's a sign, often, that we need to change what we're up to. And I think the very fact that we have Jonah gives us hope. Because, see, how, how did we come to have Jonah? Surely it's only because Jonah wrote it down. And he probably didn't want to write at the end, and then I came to my senses and had a better mind. But I think the fact that he's telling us about what he was like is in fact saying, you know, God did change me through this. It may have been tough, but I have changed. Well, we've come to the end of the book of Jonah, and I thought it'd be great now. I see I have about 20 more minutes. So, yes, it was a joke. Um, for application. So, um, I think we can sort of sit here and say we're not like Jonah. But the book of Jonah doesn't just ask us, are we like Jonah? It also asks us, are we like God? I've put up a line here um, that will show, you know, you think whereabouts on that line am I? So Jonah was obviously down the anger end when, uh, when it came to how he thought about other people, in that case how the people of Nineveh were forgiven by God. And God, of course, is right up the right-hand end. Uh, he's concerned for the people of Nineveh. And he's concerned for others who don't know him. So, where would you put yourself on that line? And I guess is question A. Um, and question B would be, where would you like to put yourself? See, for me, it's, it's clear I'd like to be uh, at that right hand end of the line. But the reality is, 
I don't think I'm angry with others. I don't think I hate others often. But I do think I'm pretty apathetic, actually. I just don't make that much effort. Uh, a friend of mine who's not from Trinity Church Brighton uh, told me recently that his church's prayer group consists of him, his wife, uh, and a few elderly people. Now, his church is a young church on average. And he said, oh, look, I think it shows that either as a church, um, we're not relying on God, or actually we're not that concerned for those who don't know God. See, there's, there's room for us to move, isn't there? Up to the concern level. Just move that off. Secondly, our social time. See, if we're concerned for those who don't know God, we're already spending some of our free time with them, getting to know them, getting to know their issues, thinking about how we can point them in a better direction. And of course, our situations in life will change over time. Nick, a man I knew some years ago, is a single Christian man at the time, told me that he spent each Friday night with his work colleagues, but that was the only time that he spent socially with people who weren't Christians. And he said for him, he thought that was quite a low proportion. I suggested that he could get married, have kids, and then that would be quite a high proportion of his social time. <laughs> he has done that. Uh, for the record, and we've lost contact. Um, <laughs> I hope he's still spending that three hours um, with his work colleagues. See, but, but, to, but to do that, to keep associating with those who don't know God, uh, it takes effort. It means getting to know our neighbours. It means um, going out with them, perhaps, so we can spend time with them, talk about what's in their life. Richard Culkin who um, started the church planning group, not dissimilar to Trinity, but it's in London. He came and spoke here, and he spoke about evangelism. And he said that in England, people would have drinking parties. It was what you did. And so all the parents of the kids at the primary school um, would have drinking parties. They'd all, a lot of them would go, and they would go till 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. And he said, if the Christians were to all get up and leave at 11, that wouldn't be good. It would say, we're, you know, we're markedly different to you, and we're not like you, we don't care about you. So he was saying, plan to stay late. That's how you get to know them. That's how you can speak into people's lives, because we're like them. So it will mean an effort, won't it? And if we're concerned for those uh, who don't know God, I think it will affect what we ask for from Cameron, or from the next minister. Sorry, Cameron, I'm not asking you to leave. But, you know, what we expect from any minister. See, we could say we pay our minister and so we expect him to look after us and to be around when we need him. Or we could say we pay our minister so that he can tell others about Jesus because they need to know about Jesus. And also so that he can teach us how to tell others about Jesus. And for him to be able to teach us how to tell others about Jesus, he needs to be doing it himself. Because you can't tell others if you don't know how to do it yourself. So we must make sure that we give him enough time and energy 
that he can get to know his neighbours, that he can get to know other parents from his kids' soccer team, for example, so that he can speak to them about Jesus because, well, God's concerned for them and so should we be. And it'll also make a difference to what churches look like. See, I want to to make a, a bit of a bold statement here. I want to say that there can be no such thing as a mature church. Or to put it another way, there can be no such thing as a church that's full of mature Christians. Why not? Well, because if we're mature Christians, we'll be concerned for those who don't know God. Are we spending time with them? We'll be talking to them. We'll be perhaps inviting them along. And some will come and join us. And they won't be mature Christians when they join us, will they? They'll be, they'll be new. So that if we do have a mature church, it won't be mature for long. And if you go to join a church, they used to say, you know, if you, if you find the perfect church, don't join. I think if you find a mature church, don't join. Surely there must be an issue. And I think there's also some good news when we think about this. We can think that if we're concerned for people to know God, that they'll come to dislike us. I don't think it's as true as what we think. Uh, A friend of mine's Dave. He's part of the soccer team I mentioned a few times. Um, We as a soccer team will uh, often discuss things after the match for, for hours sometimes. We discuss all sorts of things, all the topics you normally discuss, a lot of the topics, well, all the topics you don't normally discuss. We'll talk about politics, we'll talk about sex, we'll talk about religion. And at every opportunity, I'll explain what a Christian view is on a particular issue or when, you know, a particular time of the calendar, Easter, Christmas. Um, now I'll say a bit about what it is because they don't know what Christmas means. They don't know really what Easter is. Um, so I've, you know, I've been working quietly away on Dave for a while. And then one night we're having a discussion and someone said that they had, uh, I think it was a Jehovah's Witness, knock on their door and try to convert them and how they were quite um, insistent and, and quite having a go. And uh, Dave's comment was, he said, you know, I've heard a lot of people with um, you know, Mormons and Jehovah's Witness and stuff. It's funny, you know, I've never had anyone try to convert me. And I went, oh, um, both inside and outside. And um, they thought it was quite funny. And the funny thing is, two or three times since then, he said the same thing and looked at me and laughed. Because <laughs> he knows that it makes me uncomfortable. But I think Dave's also saying, you know, Jeff, you can go a bit harder if you like. You know, tell, try and convert me. That's fine. And Greg Lee, who was speaking yesterday at the men's convention, he's from Newcastle. And I imagine what he said about Newcastle is pretty similar to what Adelaide would be like. Um, He says that when he talks to people in Newcastle, particularly younger people, they haven't been to church, they don't know a Christian, and he says, they don't know the Bible, haven't read the Bible. But he says that's good because they haven't had a bad experience of church um, and they're often interested in what we believe. So it's not all bad news. Well, uh, for God so loved Nineveh, that Jonah ought to have loved Nineveh too. 
For God so loves those who don't know him, Adelaide. We ought to love them too. And that love and that concern should shape our free time and it should shape who we are as a church. Well, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you loved us when we didn't know you. Thank you for those who are concerned for us when we didn't know you and told us about you. Help us to be concerned for others like you are. Guide our thoughts and our actions and correct us to make us like you when we need it. Amen.